the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Star Traders, Galactic Spheres of Influence, Art from an Icon, and When You Stab the Sun with a Spear, Does It Leak Quinacridrone Gold? Plus, part 22 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have an interview with Bain cover artist extraordinaire, well, science fiction artist extraordinaire, Bob Eggleton. Bob has been doing covers for Bain from the ancient of days. He is responsible for hundreds of Bain covers, including many this year and coming up. He's also the artist who is defining our reissue of the Heinlein titles in trade paperback over the past few years. Now, Bob is not one of those artists who is shy about talking about art. We had a fascinating conversation with Bob, in fact, so fascinating and lengthy that we decided to present it in two parts. So part one is coming up of that interview. And, of course, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. But first, the news. The August eARCs are out and on the rampage. Now, an eARC is the unit of measurement used on the Siberian plains for the shoulder height of a Tibetan yak. No, no, no. An eARC is an electronic advanced reader's copy. This is what we used to call galley proofs. So you get them early and you get them with all the typos carefully preserved for that authentic, just off the writer's word processor feel. Kind of like rich Corinthian leather with a few splotches, but three months before they hit the bookstores. So we got two new eARCs up at BainEbooks.com. First up is the new entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Leaden Universe. This is Trade Secret. This one is about Terran Jethri Goblin, who is adopted by Clan Corval, the famous interstellar trading clan. So Sharon and Steve are taking us back in time a little bit in the Leaden storyline. Also out now is Reich Espor's Spheres of Influence. This is the sequel to Grand Central Arena. And Reich's concept of this enormous meeting place of all the intelligent species of the universe is really fascinating. And it's an action-packed story as well. Trade Secret and Spheres of Influence are available only at BainEbooks.com in eARC form right now. So go ye there and check them out and all the great books. Take a look through the ebook site. There's an amazing variety of science fiction, fantasy, and much, much more there. BainEbooks.com And now, here's part one of a two-part interview with Bain cover artist Bob Eggleton. Hank Davis, Bain Senior Editor Emeritus, is with us today, and we are very pleased to welcome artist Bob Eggleton to the podcast. Hi, Bob. Hey, how are you? Hi, Bob. Bob Eggleton is the winner of nine Hugo Awards, 12 Chesley Awards, the 1999 Skylark Award, and two Locus Awards. He has done lots and lots of covers for Bain over many years, including the entire list of James Schmidt's volumes edited by Eric Flint, 
Darkness and Dawn and Gods and Androids by Andre Norton. Lots of other Andre Norton covers. Seas of Venus by David Drake. I got a bunch of analog reader awards as well over the years. In fact, uh, three in a row, I think it was. Uh, not 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 this year, but through last year and the years before. There was I got three in a row on those. And then I got a bunch back in the 90s, and then there was some Asimov's Reader's Awards and all that. I, those things, I, they're, they're, they're fun. I lose track of them. But uh, the, the, the real reward, the real reward for me, the award, my big award, is the fact that I'm still still working and still doing fairly well and still fairly well-known in the field. So that's, um, for me, is a, is a really uh, good thing because I, uh, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of people they come and they go and, uh, you know, and some people get into the field and they get a lot of great kudos and a lot of really nice art and a lot of beautiful covers and things like that. And then they die and they don't, they haven't got anything. I mean, you know, I can, Daryl Sweet, John Berkey, uh, I can name like a half a dozen other guys that all were deserving of some really good high kudos and awards and they did just didn't happen. And, uh, and now they're not with us. So, uh, you know, that's how it goes. Richard Powers, he's another one, you know, and it just, it just didn't happen. And even though they're legendary, they just didn't get the kudos that they that some other of us have gotten, you know. So, so I, I kind of think of myself as particularly lucky in that in that regard. And but it's it's kind of nice to see other people go ahead and do things and win and stuff like that. And there's a nice little variety. It's not always predictable, which is which is nice. Yeah. Well, just making a living, like you said, making a living, a good living as an artist is a is the big award. Um, oh, it is. Yeah, it is. And I'm going in my thirtieth year. This is my thirty 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 years. And Next year will be 30 years, will be so 29 years I've done work with Bain off and on, you know, and uh, which is kind of cool, you know, I mean, I'm sort of one of the legacy people, I guess you could say it, you know, because that's when Jim formed everything almost about 30 years ago, a little over, little, a little over 30 years ago, I think, a little under 30 years ago, I forgot what it was, he was, I know it was like fall 1983, I think it might have been. Yeah, um, b- before some of our interns were born. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that weird when, when, when you, yeah. when, you know, you're, you're, you're going, you know, I'll, I'll be talking about a song or something like that to somebody, and they'll say, oh, yeah, that, that's great. The song came out in 84, you know, and they're like, I was born in 95. Isn't <laughs> yeah. there a Steely Dan <laughs> song about that? Yeah. They feel real, real old, that does. Well, some some recent Eggleton covers, I mean, you're still doing them for us. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Our Portal and Threshold by Eric Flint and Rex Bohr, that cover. The beautiful Dragon's Ring cover. Uh, yeah, the, some, those are my favorites. You just listed all a lot of my favorites yeah. right there. That Dave Freer book. Uh, and recently, the ones Hank edited, which is In Space No One Can Hear You Scream, the our Halloween anthology, and ah. uh, Cosmic Christmas to You. Yeah, exactly. Um, coming in November. and Yeah, I mean, just, there's just so many more. You cannot mistake an Eggleton cover. I, I don't think he did a Cosmic Christmas. Oh, he didn't do a Cosmic Christmas? I didn't do this year's one. Oh, no, you did, did last a Cosmic that, Christmas that one. Kennedy. Okay, Sam Kennedy's well, he done did, this he one. He did uh, Volume 1, yeah. A Cosmic Christmas. But so, there's, there's, there's a word around the pipe, Hank, that you're you're conceiving or come up with a giant monster anthology. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, that's that's my territory. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get into that. Um, let me list some of your art books if people want to look you up. Uh, Alien Horizons, Greetings from Earth. Uh, which one are you going? No, both out of print, but you can get them used. Uh, and Primal Darkness. Primal Darkness, yep, you can find that. Now, you've also worked as conceptual illustrator for movies like Sphere, Jimmy Neutron, Boy Genius, and The Ant Bully, 
and uh, and you've designed thrill rides. Like yeah, the, I worked on Star Trek. I did some. I designed a Klingon planet for the Star Trek Experience, which closed under a very strange strange. Um, uh, it had nothing to do with the not pot. It wasn't. It was a very popular ride. It's just something had happened between Paramount Pictures and, and the Hilton or something. I don't know what it was. It was some something. Oh. At, some kind of thing at Kerfuffle happened. And they just okay. closed it. Probably and the, um, then the uh, you know I've done work for uh, some animated movies. Jimmy Neutron, Boy Genius, The Ant Bully, and an unproduced movie called Seahorse, which had a nice start, but as many movies they just don't get going. But we did a lot of nice artwork for it, and then. Uh, a small movie in Japan called The Idol, and it was a friend of mine, Norman England, who is a uh, American living over there, and he directed this kind of this little like twenty five thousand dollar movie that he made, and it was just a lot, it was a lot of fun to do. It was kind of a, a little thing to do, and uh, um, you know, and it's just been, you know, I do things here and there. I don't do some movies. I mean, I if I really was aggressive to go out and do more movie work, I'd, I'd be plotting around out in Hollywood trying to trying to get some going, but uh, I. I don't know. There's some. There's so much of it that you do it, and movies are great. And there's some beautiful conceptual artwork done with them. There's reams of stuff, and it's like it, it, you'll never see it because it's like the end shot of Raiders of the Lost. Hollywood warehouse is like the end shot of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, they they just put everything away, and it can never be seen. You know, by anybody. You legally can't even show it to people or anything like that. So, and it's just for movies that never got made. You know, and these are some of them are even based on popular, uh, very very well known science fiction books. Um, uh, you know, that just never got made because they, they went as far as the concept stage and that concept stage is where they determine whether or not they're going to go ahead with it by uh, commissioning, you know, they'll commission, you know, they'll have a budget to commission art and then they'll decide, okay, well, you know, we, we don't know if we can make this movie. It's, say, it's, say it's, for example, like a good example is Childhood's End has been uh, uh, um, uh, bandied about yeah. for the years. great you know, Arthur C. Clarke novel. that and it's just it, it just it just it may not get made even because of the fact that they're you know it depends upon the marketing and all that kind of stuff you know you've got to like they, they, they but they commission it they spend a lot of money to commission this kind of stuff and and they'll do sketches and sketches and sketches and they'll go around and around and around and they'll get a script and then the script will, new script will come in and they'll get rid of all the other ideas that have just been come up with and then they get like the red light they just say well you know the studio said now nah, you know we don't want to spend you know 90 million dollars on this movie or whatever you know they just don't they just don't think it's a good good return on it so you know and then and so it doesn't go anywhere so there's lots of nice artwork it just never gets used and that's the only thing with 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 doing concept art that's sort of the downside of it is you do you get paid you do nice art but unfortunately it uh it doesn't do the light of day when you do a book cover not only do you do usually nice art but you also get credited for having done nice art and everybody sees it well let's uh let's talk about some let's talk about book cover art and art in general um so bob what does quinacridrone gold mean to you quinacridrone gold is is it's a it's a really great um um color that is um it's 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 one of my favorite colors. I mean, one of my favorite colors are like ambers and earth colors, and this color is kind of a a, a, a beautiful transparent. Uh, it's not red, but it's not brown, and it's it's a real rich orangey kind of brown that when you when you use it with acrylics and you add water to it, it becomes very transparent. When you use it with oils and you add medium to it, it's still very transparent. And it's wonderful because it modular, it's very modular and you can do an underpainting with it. And the underpainting, the underpainting is the key to all successful paintings with me. Um, 
that's where I establish all the values and the and the, and, and how it's going to look, generally speaking. And I'm not afraid to say, you know, uh, you know, I'm mean, looking at it going like, oh, it looks all orange. Well, no, it's not all orange. The orange, the, the warm color forms the basis that everything's going to go on top of, which means if I put like a blue sky on it, the blue will be opaque paint, and that'll just go over it. But, it, but the, the, the warmth of the, 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 the quinacridone gold comes through, and that what that will do is that will make it a very, uh, it'll just make it a uniformly warm painting. You know, and you'll get little bits that'll leave little bits of the underpainting showing here and there for rocks and scenery and things like that. And and it gives it a sense of depth that is is not uh you know, that it can be it can be difficult to duplicate from nature, but but I've learned looking at a lot of old masters paintings, I'm, I'm particularly inspired by the Hudson Valley Valley River School of Artists like Albert Bierstadt and uh, Frederick Church and Thomas Moran and people like that. They did these great paintings of the American West. Um you know, uh, hundreds of years ago, and uh, in the 1800s, and they were, they were very. Um, uh, you know, the, the idea was to to get people to go out there and to settle in the West. And what they did, a lot of their works were they did a lot of they did a lot of these underpaintings. So the whole thing would be painted in kind of like a brown color, and then they'd add all their colors on top of that. But they'd leave these little areas showing, like, and there would be the underpainting showing with little hits of light of light and that's sort of what I've I've learned to do I mean that's that's it's it's yeah. it's funny it's not as complicated as it looks but it's also really complicated to try and explain it to anybody exactly how it works it's it's and and you know that's why I like working in traditional media uh, only because it's more accidental things happen uh, when you work like that in paint is that the the underpainting is the secret to that sort of Eggleton glow that yes it is that's exactly get... what it is I, I cover everything and I've, I've had some Interesting comments from other artists who are really astonished that I do that, that I, that I just take and cover the entire canvas in either a kind of a reddish brown or something like that. And, and they're really astonished that, uh, and then I'll put cooler colors on top of it because I want that kind of that warmer, I just want that warmer aura about the whole thing, even though individual areas of color may be, uh, you know, cool. Uh, you might have, uh, I want the whole painting to appear warm and it, it uniformly gives it that and that's kind of the secret of what I try to do. And it'll stay in its underpainting stage for days on end before I move ahead with it because I need to get a look at it and see where I'm going with it. And I, I'm not an artist that is very good at planning colors. They just sort of accidentally happen. Um, I'm really, I mean, a lot of, a lot of people say to me, oh, you know, you know, what do you do for color sketches? And do you, do you, you know, what do you do when you're working up ideas? So how do you make your color theories work? Well, I don't have any color theories. I just kind of throw color at it. And hopefully it's, it gets, it gets a general idea of where I'm going in my head. And, uh, and that's for me is, that's for me gets me very, very excited when I start to in paint. And, and I, and there's a little bit of an adventure. It's like, oh, you know, I, you know, I'm not sure if this is going to, the sky's going to work out the way I thought about it. And I might start adding in another color just as a sheer lark. And I'm not even planned on it. And it's, it's suddenly I've got this really great thing happening and it's this great, kind of what we call a happy accident starts happening and it starts looking really great and these are the things that surprise you about pain you get these accidents when you're working and that sounds really crazy to work like that but that's the only way i can that's the only way that that i can work it's 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 my best way of working do you use um do you use a computer at all do you use photoshop or anything like that you know what um my wife uses photoshop we do that to balance art 
balance the colors when we shoot the artwork. I'll do a painting, and then because nobody photographs artwork anymore, you can't get 4 by 5 transparencies anymore because uh, nobody has film anymore. So we had to do crash course in photography of how to photograph art and get a halfway, a really good, decent camera to photograph the, you know, good, good, a lot of pixelation, pixels and stuff like that to, to photograph the art. And my wife will put it over into her computer, and she will do the Photoshop on it to get the balances right of to make it most like what the original painting was done like and then she'll zap out with Photoshop she will zap out little high points and and little areas of um that are just, you know, they, 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 they look great on the painting, but they didn't photograph well or something, like a little streak of paint or something like that. It looks fine as a painting, but it didn't it didn't quite, fo- it looks like a when you photograph it, it looks like you did a mistake or something. And so we, we cover all that kind of stuff up, and, and uh, that's about the extent of it. Um, I know a lot of people that uh, swear, they go by computers a, a little bit too much sometimes, because what ends up happening is your life becomes so... Uh, stuck in with technology that you have to keep upgrading and upgrading before you're going to get outdated and you can keep buying into this whole thing and the problem with that is that in, in the end of the day you don't have a a real you, you don't have a solid tangible painting that you, that you can put on sale and somebody will buy for for lots of money um uh, as somebody did the portal painting i did for eric flinton Rick Spohr's book, um, I, I uh, was able to sell that, and the reason I was because it was it was a it was an oil painting, and, and it was a digital painting. It looks beautiful. Yes, I'm sure there's uh, there are some marvelous marvelous artists who do digital work. The only difference is, is that they can that when they when they print them out, they're effectively selling prints of things, and they're not they're, there's no it's it's all photons of light that they're working with, and not not paint. And uh, I don't know. I'm just sort of a I just. I'm learning so much about paint that I've never really had the chance to sit down and uh, work with uh, um, digital that much. Every time I think I'm going to go to go sit down and learn about it or whatever, somebody comes along and says to me, "Hey, Bob, you know, I want a painting of this," and they'll and and they'll pay me uh, a lot of money for a private commission or something like that. And and they want her, they want an oil painting, so that's what I've got to do them. So I'm my my life gets kind of absorbed doing an oil painting instead of me sitting down and going, well, how am I going to learn this digital stuff? You yeah. know, I mean, it just they just it just keeps on perpetuating itself, which is it's a good thing, you know. But uh, you know, I, I sometimes I do feel a little bit a little bit left out. I must confess when I see a lot of these people going at it with the digital work and everything. And then again, there's nothing against it. It's just that I've seen and I've seen some stunning stunning work. Uh, it's just that I, I I get a little bit nervous when something. On it requires power to keep it going. You see, and if the power goes out and you didn't hit save, um, oh boy, you know, <laughs> you know, you're 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 in trouble. Or or if you're, the power goes out and you the painting is due, um, you need at least at least by daylight. And I've even done it by candlelight. I've painted I painted in oils and acrylics that way, and so you know at least it's ready when it needs to be ready. You know, whereas I know I know some people. Got stuck in one of the hurricanes we had, and they re- they they were power out power for days, and uh, he he really needed to get going on something, and it was not not a good situation. So, well, let's uh, and, you know that's the worry. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your back. You live in New England, and yeah, so, I live uh, up in Rhode Island. Yeah. So uh, you you knew you wanted to be an artist pretty early. Can you tell us a bit about your development, whether your parents were behind you or not, and is it true that your dad invented the Teflon coatings on nonstick skillets? On the last one, absolutely yes. My dad was an engineer in the 60s, and he, he was very, very kind of self-taught, and he was always, he was the guy that got me into 
watching space missions like the Gemini and Apollo missions and and then he he got me into watching Star Trek and he sort of like said, you know, this this is really really good stuff and you might it's got a great morality lesson in it. So you should watch, you know, and I, and I did, and that's, and that's how I got into it, and of course, like, you know, they, at the same time, they wrote me comic books, and, you know, various monster magazines, and things of that nature, and, uh, uh, then we, um, you know, and then, and then later in the, about 1970, I think it was, there was a re-release of the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, and they took me to see it, and it changed my life forever, and I was, what, 10 years old at the time, and, uh, you know, one of the things that is fun about that is that uh, they, they did support it. They, they really got behind it. I mean, my dad taught me how to draw. My mother got me to art lessons. She got me to various art classes. They, and they didn't have very much back then. This is like the early, you know, early 70s. They didn't have very much, but she, she did her best to find what she could and got me into various creative endeavors and was after, after classes and things like that. So they did encourage it. And uh, eventually, you know, as things got in and I got out of high school, they're like, well, you know, you're going to make your living doing this. And I'm like, well, that's what I'm going to try and do. And it turned out that, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was a little bit uh, hard to, it was sort of hard to get them to, they were a little bit, as any parents would be, they were a little bit suspect and a little bit cautious. And, and then, you know, everything started, the ball started rolling and then they, they grew more optimistic as that, that went along. So, you know, I, I you could say, yeah, I, I had a lot of support from it and, uh, support from them. And, and, uh, they were, they were very, they were very good at that kind of thing. So, uh, and then, you know, I wasn't, it didn't seem to be doing any harm, so they were happy with that. So Jim Bain, let's talk about him, the founder of Bain Books. He kind of, you kind of developed as a major artist along with Bain Books. Can you tell us about your relationship? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I met Jim way back in, God, it had to be 82 or 83. It may have been 83. And he used to, this is when we used to go to, there used to be these science fiction conventions. And in the 80s, a lot of the literary science fiction conventions, like, they really blossomed. They, they got big, 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 big. As, and, and one of them up here was called Boscone. And it's a very old convention. It's still running. It's just that back in the 80s, they wound up calling it the Winter World Con because it was just getting more and more people every year because we had this, this influx of interest in science fiction post-Star Wars. Everybody became interested in it. So all everybody started coming. And, and you'd get publishers, and they'd throw parties, and they'd go, and, and they'd wander around looking at artists' work and things like that. And I kind of ran into Jim and just started chatting with him. And he goes, oh, I'm forming a new book company. And, and you know, would you like to do some stuff for me? And I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. I gave him my card and some samples. And I started doing things for him. And like, I, like, I want to say 84 or something like that. It was maybe the late 83, but it was maybe the early 84. It was probably the, the best I could do it. And, and, uh, and uh, it was just kind of like a... Um, he had kind of a very small office that was essentially like the size of a very large walk-in closet on, I think it was West 36th Street down in New York at the time. And that's when he started really developing a lot of people. And and, and it sort of grew from there. And everything everything sprouted out of that. And it was just, it was like, when, and, and he, you know, I sat down and had a long chat with him about what made good covers and stuff. And and uh, he, he was he was always a, always a, a, a interesting interesting opinions. He always had interesting views on that. And uh, you know he had quite a history. And what's interesting is that one of my, one of the first science fiction magazines that I was actually inspired to, looked at me and said, you know that is a that's a really wonderful cover. And it was in the I think it was the early seventies, and it had this Jack Gone cover, and it was uh, it had like a wizard 
sitting on top of this giant lizard creature or a giant dragon or something. And I just said, God, I love that piece. And I, I, I was maybe, what, 11? And when I found the magazine years and years and years later in a, in a used box at a science fiction convention, I, I was looking through it, and who was it edited by? It was Jim Bain. <laughs> Way back yeah. when he was he was editing, I think it was it might have been Worlds of If or something like that. It was a very it was very very uh, it was when he was doing some magazine editing. So I so I my my encounter with him happened without even me realizing like that was him. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, so it, it's grown ever since, and I've sort of, uh, I, I could never explain my success to anybody other than just, it was a different time. A lot of people come to me and they say, well, you know, how are you successful? How, how's the best way to be successful? This kind of thing. Well, right now, I don't know, because everything's publishing has changed. It's changing. Fans have changed. Uh, conventions have changed. Um, and back then, in a sense, we didn't have the internet, so there was none of this community. Of it just was you had to go to a convention and you had to meet people face to face, and you had to shake hands, and you had to talk to people, and and there was this interaction, and it was a lot more. I'm going to say a lot more personal, uh, personable than the than the world is right now, and and so it's been it's been an interesting, uh, you know, and I you know, and I would just go down to New York and meet a lot of people, but it's been an interesting ride. It's been a very interesting time, and and if somebody said to me, "Well, how do I get into this now?" and it's like I'm going, you know, and I'm, I, you know, I would be if it was right now, and I had to start it all over again, you know, I would just shake. I wouldn't know how <laughs> because it's so it's it's such a we live in this this very complicated world now. So uh, and so back then things I think were a little bit. Again, it was much more. Um, you could actually meet people, and and again, publishers. You had Jim Bain, you had Don Wolheim, you had. Um, uh, you know these, you know guys that were real visionaries, and it's kind of like the music industry, like the science fiction industry, uh, followed the music industry in a sense because back in the then, back in the day, you had like guys that were gurus of like Atlantic Records at Ahmed Erdgen, and he just was, he wasn't really a CEO, and he just discovered people like Led Zeppelin and and signed people Clive Davis he was another one and they just they just said we I think this is going to be great and we're going to make we're going to develop this artist that I'm um, well science fiction publishers did the same thing with a lot of writers they would they would um develop a promising writer from the start just from short stories they'd start saying well you know this is a great short story we'll do another one we'll do another one and all of a sudden it would be you know you get this development going then they develop the novel and and, and it was a much more of a personal approach and i know that jim did that with a lot of writers there mm -hmm. art was the same thing it's like jim yeah. saw something in me years and years ago and so i developed it and i can look back at my old pieces and kind of cringe at them and go oh, god i did that you know but you know it's just been development it's not it's not really anything to be feel bad about. It's just it's just I progressed as an artist, and that's what's happened uh, with me. And and um, you know that you know that I'm still at it. Didn't get cha you know chased away by the various forces of life. And I know many people that have. They they just they just don't do this anymore. You know, and uh, it's kind of a weird nostalgic feeling. Well, Bain is uh, Bain is an old fashioned house still in in many ways. In that we 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 work that way because you exactly. Don't wanna... And that's I've I've noticed that I noticed that with a whole line of books. There's a development that goes on and there's writers that are very very much um, I'm going to call them Bane centric that's a, that's a great word for you <laughs> because they it's it's a developing it's a it, 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 it's a developing you know it's it's the old-fashioned way of doing it and I think Jim Jim did a lot of stuff that was very 
you know, back in the day, some people thought, oh, you know, that's really, that's really, you know, crazy or whatever. But they became it became these things that that paid off in spades later on. You know, you had, you know, to you know theories about you know how you know how to develop people, how to publish books, that sort of thing, um, and and what it would result in. And it was he's very visionary in that regard, and that's that's what's there's a real there's a real testament to that. And, and there's very few people in the science fiction industry, especially that I can attest that you could remember like that. You could say like that they created this and, and that's resulting now. Yeah. Well, you, let's get back to your work. You've done so many varied things, but um, I guess I would think of an Eggleton uh, cover as maybe a vast science fiction landscape with a small but important uh, human or tech element in it. You get, you do these beautiful uh, romantic landscapes, uh, romantic in the, as in the romantics. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And that painterly oh, yeah. look to I've it. I've done, I like a lot of um I'm a guy that's kind of into man versus nature. You know, that that, that theory of like, you know, in, in types of write, writing is the same way. You have man, you know, the type of conflicts that go on. And my thing is man versus, it's always that nature in the universe is such a big thing to us. And this ties into a lot of my philosophy on everything. Um, you know, uh, it's we, 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 we live in this planet and the planet Earth seems very large compared to humans that live on it. You know, you look at it from space and it seems extremely large. But then you look at it compared to Jupiter and we're just a little marble. And you look at it compared to the you look at Jupiter compared to the sun and the sun and, and it, the sun dwarfs that, Jupiter. And then you look at the universe and it's so big and so limitless and, and, and endless, seemingly endless, that it's inconceivable amounts of distances. And yet, you know, uh here we can um you know we you know it's to me it's all about scale and that ties in the whole monster aspect why i like giant monsters as well as why i like a movie like 2001 a space odyssey or a con high concept things of a big picture type science fiction because it's all about scale it's all about where we stand as you know where where we are uh in in the scale of things and and uh it to me it, it's philosophical it's all about scale and that's what i love about land Landscapes is when you see a landscape, the human is the guest in it, a person, and it could be any landscape. It could be a traditional landscape from uh, John Constable, or it could be uh, uh, you know you know one of the great landscape painters, George Ennis, uh, uh, you know that who I you know people that I, I just love their work and the human, the humans, if there are any. The humans are often the guest in the painting. You see, so the, and the painting is—it's more about the big picture and the landscape. Um, uh, you know, John Martin—he's another one. He's a very brilliant English painter um, from the 1800s who did these epics. They were religious epics, and and I'm not necessarily a religious person, but it's like they—they they just these amazing epics, and and he he made his humans almost guests in the in in the painting, and and. That's what I like in my stuff is I like to let you know that there's there's people in the painting, but there's also this other bigger picture going on around it. And um and there's and there are people that do marvelous portraits. There are people that do just portrait type cover art, just in it and they're marvelous at it. They just that it just it's not the direction that I tend to go with my work a lot of times, you know. Uh, but I'm, I'm just a landscape guy. I mean, whether it's like looking at a planetary landscape, Mars or some, you know, other planet or something like that, or it could just be an English landscape or something like that. It could be here, right here on Earth, because Earth's the planet too, you see. So it's, it's for me, it's all about the land, it's all about the landscape and, and what's in the landscape is what makes me interested. Well, dragons, Bob. 
<laughs> you you one of the things you you've done so many dragon it's got it's got to be an obsession with you. So what's so great about dragons and Godzilla? Well, what's so great about dragons? Okay, dragons are essentially a um dragons are mythical. Dragons are they're 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 not dinosaurs, but they're not animals. We don't know what they are. We don't know where they came from. They're sort of a, they come from mythical origins. Are they some dragons are very smart? Smog in Lord of the in um, the Hobbit, excuse me, uh, was an extremely smart dragon. Um, he could talk. Uh, there are several other cases of talking dragons. So you know somewhere that they've got a brain somewhere that that makes them be able to do that. So they're not quite dinosaurs and they're not quite animals. And we don't know. They're just interesting. Looking and and um, that's what I, I, I you know, the mythical the mythical aspect of it and it's Godzilla tying Godzilla into that Godzilla goes back to uh, the old Japanese folklore and the the uh, like many the seven headed dragon that they created in their their ancient uh, folklore and um, and that goes back to feudal Japan and it was a uh, uh, it's in some of these great um, uh, you know old silk paintings and things like that and they did you know and and it's it's sort of this whole idea that nature is this big thing and and the 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 beasts that come out of it they're called uh, the two words they use for them are um kaiju which is a giant giant beast and yokai yokai is a unknown ghost it's a it's a japanese expression for like a a being that may be a de- he may be a demon he may be a monster uh, we don't know what he is but it's kind of a nice little nice little usage of the word ghost they have and and, and they're like a spirit they're like a, basically a spirit and um of course they're all these outlandish creations and this is all where this whole concept of Godzilla comes from and all the various monsters that have come uh, from that, that whole uh, vein of uh, movie making, that it, they, they, they just appear out of nowhere and we don't know the reason. And the Japanese sensibility is that they're not sure of the reason either. It's just they've got to go deal with it now. And, um, yeah. and, and, that's, and so it's, there's always that, that mystical element about it. And that's what makes, that's what makes kaiju interesting uh because they're mystical and and uh so it's kind of a personification of of the unknown universe the laws that you know people just can't stop or yeah, exactly it's a it's a personification of like an unknown of or an embodiment and things that we don't know about the universe yeah tell us some more about some bane covers what what have been some of your most memorable ones and oh uh, boy well recently uh portal that's a, that was a fun one. That's a beautiful cover. This is uh, actually my favorite cover of 2013. <laughs> um, you know, the funny part was I saw it on Bar. It was in Barnes and Noble, like right out in front, and, and and my wife spotted it. And what was nice about it was it kind of stood out from all these other covers that were all backs of women's shoulders. You know what I mean? They were just sort <laughs> of like it was just really strange. There's, 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 this cover trends are really interesting, and I study this, of course. And there's this whole pre- there's this whole thing of like a lot of use of photography with women's shoulders with their backs and a tattoo on the back of the shoulder and the hair cascading down the back and and you know and that's what's really fun to see and then I do something like that and it stands right out for a minute it actually looks a little bit old fashioned a little bit retro but you know what I wanted that effect and uh, because
because it's, it's a great story. Nobody writes things like that. I mean, there's just so little. I mean, a lo- in fact, on the cover blurb, it compares it to Hal Clement and Arthur C. Clarke. And this is what nobody, you know, that nobody's writing that these days. It's, it's so, there's such a dearth of that right now. Yeah, and, and that's the stuff that I grew up with. I mean, it was like I, I'm sort of a, um, you know, I used to be friends with Hal Clement very much uh, before he passed away. Um, uh, ten years ago, and uh, he, you know, we saw eye to eye on the kind of the kind of the the alienness of things, and and so for me, I, I enjoyed doing that. Um, I always wanted to do something with the with the ice moon Europa and and Jupiter kind of on the you know coming up over the side of it, and uh, you know, and, and when I when I painted the spaceship, I there was one site that the cover was featured on, and somebody made the the comment on it. Oh, it looks like a lobster claw or something. It's like, well, you know, that's what he described it kind of looking like this organic kind of thing, and he, you know, he even gave me these great. Um, diagrams of what his alien ship looked like and I tried to incorporate that into it and and yeah okay then that's what it looks like that's what I painted it like you know and uh, but it was a lot of fun it was a nice piece and it sold and I can't, I can't say where but it sold to a very prestigious collection um, which I'm very happy to be proud of to be part of um, by a very avid fan um, and uh, you know and, and he immediately bought it as a uh, you know kind of feeling that yeah, I mean, it, it just evokes a sense of wonder. Uh, in, in what I try the, to do. Yeah, but often you succeed, not everybody does. What I try to do, again, and again, if you look at it, what have I done? I've done a landscape. I've done this landscape. And at the time, I, you know, it was such a, it was such a fun piece. I said, oh, you know, I'm just going to continue it on the back. So I made a wraparound, and it went on the back, and it was, it was really no skin of my, it was really no skin of my teeth to just make it a long painting, a landscape format, because honestly, it looks better like that. It looks, it looks, it, you know, when you do a book cover, you get the standard up and down look, and the top has got to be empty, relatively empty for type. Um, and 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 I, f- I found out that doesn't necessarily come from that's not necessarily from an art end of things. That's sort of the some of the, the marketing people get a little bit jumpy if type interferes with the art. But but I I always feel that type can work with art. I'm one of these guys that believes that type can, firmly that type can work along with art. Uh, but you know it's, it's fun to do. Um, it was really a lot of fun to do that because it had like a sense of a real sense of old fashioned look, old fashioned look to it. And, and, um, you know, again, it was like, you know, again, half the fun is in the research and this kind of stuff too. So I was looking at pictures of Europa and pictures of Jupiter and things like that and trying to get the, trying to get more or less the, the, the feel of what it looked like. And I, I mean, to me, that's, that's my, you know, it's, it's my, um, favorite piece I've done in a, in, a, in a real long time. I mean, I've got others, like Dragon's Ring, you just named that one. That's, that was a fun piece. That really was fun, because the author, Dave, Dave Freer, really liked it. Um, and, of course, the Heinelands, um, they, uh, people love those, and, and uh, yeah, they give you've, a lot uh, of attention, and I've, I've had um, sort of a you know, as far as the original paintings go, which is nice, is I, I, I have a hard time keeping them in, uh, kind of keeping them around because people come to me and they want to buy them. So, so mm-hmm. you know, they're, the Heinelands are a lot of fun to do. And any, I think any of the classic science fictions are, I consider to be, those I consider to be really outstanding. And of course, the, the, the other one in space, no one could hear you scream. That was a blast. There's a fun story behind that. Um, uh, when I got assigned to do it, um, I thought of several ideas, and um, oh, and the oh, the other thing I'll say about Portal is I came up with another idea, and I 
we had determined that that was going to be the inside piece. So there's a little black and white inside piece in the book. So it's a bonus for buying the book. You get really two pieces of artwork. Um, but with uh, In Space, No One Can Hear You Scream, what was fun about that one was I had several ideas, but then I had an idea in my sketchbook, and I had this concept of this dark matter monster in space kind of about to consume a spacecraft. And I'd had it for years. I drew it years and years and years ago, and I I kind of pulled it out and refined it a little bit and sent it down, and that's the piece, and it worked perfect. So so I was able to kind of like not only do a piece that works as a really successful book cover, but I was able to do a piece for me too, which is it, it's it, it, that's when the best of both worlds are happening for you. Also, accidentally, uh, your cover sort of illustrates the Theodore Sturges story of the book, Medusa. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean it's a great it's a great collection. I mean when I I mean I, I saw you had in there, God, it's it you know they just again these are things that are like this is just like 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 you know candy to me. I love that. Yeah. that, that well, that I would I would stuff. mention uh, I would mention that there are some like, original stories in there that are new. One by me, for instance. Yeah, there is there's <laughs> new stories and old, and this was really nice yeah. because you it but. You see, the thing is that, to me, the whole heart of this field begins with the short stories. The mm -hmm. whole heart of this biz, the whole heart of the science fiction field starts in the short stories because that's what we got decades and decades ago. That's what we got all the, you know, that's what we got Isaac Asimov out of. That's what we got Robert Heinlein out of. Then they started writing books, and and now it's it's like so few people actually write short stories that it's really nice to read a short story because, um, and they and apparently, you know, I know I know some writers don't write them for economic reasons and whatever, but I I. I I, I mean, I think that's what the heart of the whole field is because that's where the little the little seeds start germinating to make something really great. So, you know, big things come from small things. And if you write a, a really good short story, it could bode well for some author who could write something even grander coming up later on, you know. so And, it, and the field came out of that. I mean, we, we owe, the field owes its birth to the pulp, the pulp stories of yesteryear and I'm really I, I, I don't I don't let people forget that I mean that this is something that I have to, I've been to many conferences where I've told people this is where you know it you know um, revisionist historians get involved and they start saying well you know it's like well not really not really like that and it's like well yes really that's where it came that's where it started yeah, and uh, you know it's oh, even, sure. even to the extent of doing like fantasy artwork in my own uh, self uh, it really started in, in the 17 and 1800s. It was they were called romantic painters. They didn't call them fantasy artists. They called them romantic painters, and they they did all kinds of symbolist paintings and romantic stuff. And you look at it, and you're thinking, you know, that's a unicorn, or that's a flying horse, or it's a dragon, um, and and it's like it's fantasy art. It's just that's what we call a fantasy art now. But that's where it all started, and that's where I I like to you know always I like, go back to and, and remember the origin. This has been part one of a two-part interview with Bob Eggleton, multiple award-winning artist and Bain cover artist extraordinaire. Some of Bob's recent covers include Tour of Duty by Michael Z. Williamson, Dragon's Ring by Dave Freer, as well as Dog and Dragon, that book's sequel, Portal by Eric Flint and Reich Espoor, Transgalactic by A.E. Van Vaux, uh, and the entire Bain Heinlein trade paperback series, and much, much more. We'll have part two of the interview in the next podcast. And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now.
If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has defeated one long-standing enemy, the Havenites, and reached a truce with another menace, the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling, and on the edge of its empire, rebellion is brewing. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hinka, Countess Goldpeak, commands the Royal Manticoran Navy forces in the Talbot Quadrant. This is a region allied with the Star Kingdom and on the border of the restive frontier of Solarian space. Goldpeak sympathizes with the rebels, but wants to be careful that whatever help she supplies is in a time and place of her own choosing, not that of her enemies. Her first chance to strike a blow against the Sali Office of Frontier Security and the Frontier Fleet is in the Saltash system. With the help of Solarian battlecruisers, the system governor has impounded Manticoran merchant ships in a deliberate act of provocation. Royal Manticoran Navy Commodore Jacob Zavala and his destroyer squadron have arrived in system to release the merchantman from illegal Sali confinement. And after a devastating display of Manticoran martial superiority, Zavala has the upper hand. The system governor has attempted to call Zavala's bluff, but Zavala isn't bluffing. A Manticoran boarding party, led by Lieutenant Abigail Hearns, is now aboard the orbital station where the merchants are being held, and they've received aid from an unexpected quarter. The station commander can't surrender the captives outright, but he can get his people out of the way and point the boarding party in the right direction. Now all that stands between Hearns and mission success is a battalion of Solarian gendarmes. Here is part 22 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Well, what do you think of Abigail's brainstorm? Naomi Kaplan asked Alvin Tallman, and her exo laughed. There wasn't a lot of humor in that laugh. In fact, Kaplan could hear the echo of her own bared fangs. I like it, Skipper, Tallman replied over her earbug from his station in Oxcon. There's a reason she decided to strike for the tactical track. Agreed. Kaplan nodded, but then her expression turned serious. On the other hand, I think she's right about us owing McNaughton a little cover. I agree. Not that I think he's doing it just out of the goodness of his heart, you understand, ma'am. Looks to me like these Saltashians have a few bones of their own to pick with the Sollies. Who doesn't? Kaplan asked bleakly. Only people who've never met them, Tallman replied. Returning to the matter in hand, though, how's O'Reilly doing on providing that cover? Well... Kaplan's lips quirked as she glanced across at her comm officer. I think she's a little pissed the suggestion came from Abigail, but she grabbed it and ran with it anyway. Interesting how those damage control guides tie into the emergency communication nets, isn't it? And how easy it is to invade the system when you're already inside it? Her smile grew much nastier. Trust me, Wanda's making sure her tracks are going to be easy to find— by the time anyone starts looking, it's going to be obvious we managed to hack their info systems from the outside. More of that preposterous Matty hardware for them to worry about, I suppose. 
to get our hands on those schematics. Captain Jorn Christofferson, CO Abel Company, 10347th Independent Battalion, Solarian Gendarmerie, was an unhappy man. As a general rule, he enjoyed his slot as the 10347th Senior Company Commander. True, Saltash was on the backside of nowhere, and it was somewhat lacking in the more sophisticated forms of entertainment he preferred. It was still immensely better off than some of the verge hellholes he'd been assigned to in the past, however, and as long as a man was careful, there were plenty of opportunities for him to enjoy himself. Better still, Major Pohl understood the traditional Verge fringe benefits when it came to R&R, and things had improved noticeably since Duenas had replaced the previous governor and reminded the locals who was really in charge. Christofferson wasn't about to go wandering around in uniform without three or four other gendarmes to watch his back, of course, no telling what some of the local yokels might do if they caught a gendarme all on his own, but that was par for the course anywhere in the Verge. The present situation, however, was not par for the course, and even as he stepped on his anger, he tried to convince himself that something besides fear gave that anger so much strength. Fucking bastards, he thought resentfully, glowering at the lift shafts and acutely conscious of the long, empty corridor stretching away behind him. Too damned uppity, that's what they are. We need to be smacking them down, showing them why they don't want to try to pull this kind of shit with us. Unfortunately, Vice Admiral Dobroskaya's effort in that direction seemed not to have worked out very well. So now he was the one left holding the shit end of the stick, although why it had to be a commissioned officer out here wasn't quite clear to him. If he'd had the option, he would have delegated it right on down the chain of command, but the order had been too specific to work around and pass it on to someone else. Besides, if these fanatics were really likely to push it, his neck probably wouldn't be any safer elsewhere in the end. Maybe the major's right, though. I sure hope to hell he is anyway. And... His thoughts broke off as the lift shaft door opened and an extraordinarily broad lieutenant in an armored skin suit stepped out of it. A flechette gun, which looked almost like a toy in his massive grip, pointed unthreateningly at the deck, but the dark eyes behind his helmet's armor-plast bubble didn't look especially friendly. Another manticoran followed him, and Christofferson was careful to keep his hand away from the holstered pulser at his side as another dozen mantis spread out from the lift behind the first two. No one blustered or threatened, but they were all well-armed, and they spread out smoothly to establish a perimeter around the lift banks. One of them said something into his helmet microphone, and a moment later, the second set of lift doors opened, to admit another dozen mantis who fanned out just as quickly and efficiently as they had. In less than three minutes, the boarders had set up an all-round defensive position, and no one seemed to have the least interest in Christofferson. They were too busy keeping their eyes and attention on their zones of responsibility, and his heart sank at the evidence of their obviously well-trained competence. I'm Lieutenant Abigail Hearns, the second mantie out of the first lift car said over her skin suit's external speaker. And you are? Her brisk voice wasn't overtly threatening, but it was that of someone who clearly had better things to waste time on than deference to Solarian self-importance. Christofferson felt a quick, fresh flash of anger at that almost unconscious dismissal, 
but he warned himself to tamp it down. Captain Jorn Christofferson, Solarian Gendarmerie, he replied curtly. Well, Captain Christofferson, I assume you're aware of the reason for our visit? Captain Zavala's instructed me to present his compliments to the senior gendarmerie officer and request the immediate repatriation of the Manticoran civilians illegally detained here aboard Shona Station. I'm afraid the personnel to whom you refer are in a legally declared state of medical quarantine, ordered by System Governor Duenas on the advice of his medical staff, Christofferson replied. Major Pohl regrets to inform Captain Zavala that without specific instructions from the governor terminating the quarantine, it's impossible for him to release any of the personnel covered by it. He knew the response had come out sounding stilted and rehearsed, but he didn't really care. Which wasn't to say he felt especially cheerful about finding himself all alone in a compartment with the better part of two dozen armed mantis while he delivered it. Make that three dozen, he amended sourly as the first lift car opened again with a second load of boarders. That's unacceptable, Captain. For someone with such a naturally pleasant contralto voice, Lieutenant Hearns could sound remarkably icy, Christofferson noted. I think Major Pohl had better reconsider his position. Major Pohl will take your advice under consideration, Lieutenant. I'm sure he'll give it all the weight to which it's entitled. Christofferson smiled unpleasantly as he delivered that sentence. Despite the anxiety percolating through his system, it felt good to put this neobarb in her place, but that wasn't advice, Captain, Hearns replied. It was a warning. A warning, Lieutenant? A sharper edge of anger crackled in Christofferson's tone as the mantis' insolence registered. Neither Captain Zavala nor I are prepared to put up with any more Solarian obstruction, Captain Christofferson. Blue-gray eyes bored into him from the other side of her helmet's armor-plast. Personally, I think Governor Duenas has already managed to get enough people killed for one day. I'd hope Major Pohl isn't prepared to add to the total. Are you threatening the Solarian gendarmerie? Christofferson demanded, and his face darkened with anger as Hearns rolled her eyes in exasperation. Captain, we just blew four Solarian Navy battlecruisers out of space, she said with the patience of someone addressing a particularly slow-witted child. In case you can't do the math, there were over 2,000 SLN personnel with several hundred real honest-to-gosh marines aboard each of them, and I'll be surprised if half of them survived. Precisely what part of that suggests that we should be frightened of gendarmes? Christofferson's face went from dark with anger to pale with fury under the lash of her scathing contempt, and his hand twitched towards his pulsar. It was only a tiny movement, an instinctive twitch, no more. But the muzzle of the flechette gun which had led the way out of the lift rose from the deck to about knee level, and he froze instantly. The thought of having both legs amputated by a single squeeze of the flechette gun's trigger was not an appealing one. I'd advise you to start being afraid of the gendarmerie, Lieutenant, he bit out instead, trying to keep his eyes on her face and away from that muzzle. However full of yourselves you may feel right this instant, the League's not going to be amused by what you people have already done here. Compounding it by threatening or attacking Solarian gendarmes is only going to make things worse. You need to work up a better grade of threat, Captain Christofferson, Hearns replied. Get a little more sneer into your delivery. 
Maybe grow a mustache so you can twirl it properly. I don't know, something. In the meantime, however, I think you should understand that we're not especially impressed by the Gendarmerie or the Salarian League or Major Pole or you, and save us all some trouble. We are here for our nationals who have been illegally detained in this star system. We're going to take them with us when we leave, and we're going to do whatever it takes to accomplish that objective. I'd advise you to inform Major Pole that we don't care about his medical quarantine any more than we care about Governor Duenas's threats. If he isn't prepared to release our people to us immediately, we can and will reclaim them by force. And just to be perfectly clear for the official record, by force most definitely does include the use of lethal force. You think you can just come aboard this station and threaten Solarians? Just who the hell do you people think you are? People who are sick and tired of Solarians who think they can do anything they want to anyone they want to do it to and never get called to account. Hearns replied coldly. Of course, that's only my personal view. I think it'll probably do to be going on with, though. Now, are you going to pass my message to Major Pole, or should I assume the time to begin reclaiming our people by force has already arrived? Christofferson was rigid with rage, but he was also acutely aware of his isolation. He wished now that he'd argued in favor of bringing at least a squad of his own people along, yet underneath the surface of that wish, he suspected it was just as well he hadn't. By now, this lunatic's attitude would have pushed at least one of his troopers into a violent response, and they'd already be knee-deep in bodies, including, quite probably, his own. "'I'll pass your message along, Lieutenant,' he grated. "'I can already tell you what the answer will be, though.' "'Really?' Hearn said, regarding him coldly. "'Oh, yes,' he showed her his teeth. "'Fuck off,' probably sums it up pretty well, in more official language, you understand.' The manty with the flechette gun tilted his head. His expression never even flickered, but Christofferson felt a sudden cold stab of terror as something stirred like Leviathan down in the hearts of those dark eyes. Hearns only reached out and touched her subordinate on the shoulder. Solarian command of standard English never ceases to amaze and impress me, she said, never looking away from Christofferson. All of you bring such eloquence and poetry to our common tongue. Assuming, however, that you've captured the gist of Major Pole's response accurately, I suppose we'll simply have to come and get our people. And just how do you propose to do that? Christofferson snapped. You may have a damned fleet sitting out there for all I know, but you aren't out there, and neither are the assholes sitting in the brig. You're inside with us, Lieutenant, and you really don't want to fuck with the gendarmerie on our own ground. Not unless you've got a hell of a lot more powered armor and heavy weapons than I see. You want to try fighting your way into this section, you go right ahead, because there's going to be a hell of a lot of dead mantis before you get into it, and it sure would be a pity if the brig should be accidentally depressurized as a consequence of your decision to attack the gendarmerie for refusing to release legally quarantined personnel. His eyes glittered as he delivered the none-too-veiled threat, and Hearns' expression turned colder than ever. Why am I not surprised? She shook her head. Let me explain something to you, Captain. It already occurred to us that you noble and courageous gendarmes might threaten to kill our civilians. I mean, we are talking about the Solarian gendarmerie, those champions of truth, justice, and the Solarian way. Tester knows you've shown the rest of us poor, benighted neobarbs the high road to civilization often enough. 
Trust me, we've all been deeply impressed by your intervention battalion's willingness to terrorize anyone who gets in your way, as long as they're not in a position to shoot back. Her cold contempt sent a boil of pure fury sweeping through Christofferson, but she only continued in that same scornful tone. We, however, are in a position to shoot back, and if any of the civilian spacers in your custody are harmed in any way, we will hold you, meaning, in case you were wondering, you personally, Major Pole, and all of your personnel collectively responsible for it. And, for your information, the illegal detention of our civilians constitutes kidnapping and unlawful constraint under interstellar law, which can be and will be construed as an act of piracy. And pirates, as you may be aware, are liable to summary execution. Christofferson stared at her in sheer disbelief. So now you're threatening to try us as pirates, he demanded. No, Captain. We are warning you that if any of our people are harmed, we'll execute you as pirates, she said flatly. Despite himself, her level tone sent an icicle through Yorn Christofferson. No one had ever threatened to execute Solarian gendarmes, but as he looked into those cold blue eyes and heard the unflinching certitude in that voice, he felt a terrifying suspicion that she meant it. Captain, I think you'd better go tell Major Pole what the situation is before you dig this hole any deeper for all of you, Hearns told him with a curled lip. Inform him that he has fifteen minutes to agree to release our personnel. After that time, we'll come get them. And be sure you tell him what will happen if any of our people are hurt along the way. I wouldn't want him to wonder why he's being kicked out an airlock without a skin suit. She turned her back without another word, and the manty with the flechette gun twitched his head in the direction of the corridor to Victor Seven. Christofferson felt himself hovering on the brink of saying something else, or possibly of physically attacking Hearns, as suicidal as that would undoubtedly be. But sanity overpowered Fury, and he turned and stalked down the corridor. Tell me, milady, Matteo Gutierrez said over his private link as the Solarian stormed away. Do you think there was anything less diplomatic you could have said to him? I certainly hope not, Abigail replied. She turned her head, glancing back over her shoulder as Christofferson disappeared down the corridor, then returned her attention to Gutierrez. I tried not to miss any of his buttons, anyway. Oh, I'd say you got most of them, Gutierrez said judiciously. I thought twice he was going to go ahead and go for his gun anyway. In which case he'd be dead, and the universe would be a better place. Gutierrez twitched as he heard the cold, bitter, genuine loathing in her voice. Hatred was alien to Abigail Hearns, as he knew far better than most, but she was a Grayson. Graysons met the test in their own lives. They did their jobs, and they honored their responsibilities, and a thousand years surviving on a planet which tried to kill them every single day gave them a sort of implacability which could be frightening to behold. It wasn't like the fanaticism of the faithful on their more hospitable and welcoming planet of exile, but it was something a San Martino like Gutierrez, or perhaps a Griffin Highlander, could understand. Whether even they could have matched it was another question, of course, but Mateo Gutierrez had realized long ago why the mountain clansmen in his own genes had responded so powerfully to the grace and granite inside Abigail Hearns and her people.
Well, he went on in that same judicious tone, letting none of that moment of awareness show in voice or expression. I'd say that if the object was to piss them off, you've probably succeeded. Good, Abigail said coldly, but then she gave herself a little shake and smiled at him. Good, she repeated more naturally. Because that means they'll be looking our way, doesn't it? And that being the case, perhaps you'd be good enough to organize the troops, Lieutenant Gutierrez? Of course, milady. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 22, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Hank Davis, Christopher Cifani, and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a galaxy-sized gob of quinacridrone gold tossed across a million stars in thanks to artist extraordinaire Bob Eggleton. Please join us next time at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.